Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, along with my wonderful wife, Janet, and we have the pleasure of interviewing AJ Cavanaugh today. We connected on Twitter. We have a lot of mutual connections on Twitter. And talking to him before the show, um, one of the ways that we decided to start discussing free market healthcare as individuals before we even met each other was we were kind of inspired by the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, um, Dr. Keith Smith. And if you guys follow us at all on social media, you know that um, we talk about him regularly. I've met him. I've interviewed him. He's um, has a quote on the on my book, Thickened How the Government Ruined Healthcare and How to Fix It. And so he is really a pioneer in the free market medicine movement. And we owe a lot of gratitude to him um, as healthcare professionals and as patients um, when he is driving a it started driving a market and being a pioneer in a market of free market medicine which actually makes um, services better quality better and prices less i know that sounds almost impossible but in healthcare it is possible because healthcare is so controlled and regulated by other third parties in between that you can actually have all three of those um, in a free market medicine so uh aj welcome to our show Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, yeah. So we were talking before the show, AJ, tell us a little bit about um, your background and how you got into um, the healthcare industry. Yeah, so I graduated from Indiana University. I I studied healthcare management and policy. I knew from a a relatively young age that I wanted to be involved in in medicine. The business side of it um, kind of caught my eye and not sure I'm I'm uh, smart enough to be a doctor, to be honest with you. Um, and my mom's been a nurse for close to 40 years. So I see the ups and downs and I have for, for quite a while of, of medicine. Um, and, you know, it didn't take long for me, you know, during my coursework at, at IU and, and having some internships at some large healthcare systems in Indiana to start to say, wait a second, this doesn't make sense at all. And why are things uh, happening like this? So, you know, you start meeting people on Twitter, you talk with more people and, and you start to learn and you can start to see, you know, a new path being paved. So it's, it's very exciting. And, you know, my goal is, is not any different from, you know, a caregiver. I want the best uh, for patients. I want them to get the best care they can. Uh, but most importantly, you know, I don't want them left in the dark. You know, they should know what their bill is going to be. It's, it's a little silly. So. so you were talking that some things aren't right. What are some of those things that aren't right? Well, if you, you, know, if you go somewhere and you get a service, usually you'll, you'll know the price beforehand. Uh, 99% of the time you know, in our healthcare system, that's not possible. Um, and I know that there are a lot of physicians out there that do try to get those prices in front of patients. But even that uh, doesn't shed you know, the entire light on it because there's so much behind the scenes between insurance contractual arrangements, uh, deductibles, what are we going to write off and, and in-network, out-network. So you know, there's a lot uh, that goes into this. That's just one facet of it. The other facet is you know, the, the government has imposed a lot of regulation uh, that I would argue hurts both patients and doctors. For sure. Janet, what kind of questions do you have for AJ? So AJ, it sounds like you're very motivated here to, to make some changes. So um, 
What What is your goal as far as bringing transparency to um, our healthcare patients? Yeah, my goal is is to ensure that everyone in, in, in this country has equal access to high quality medical care that is affordable, it's transparent, it's simple, and most of the time it's local. So teaming up with other like-minded individuals like yourselves and, and a lot of uh, individuals on Twitter and you know, I've started to even have some conversations here locally in Indiana with, with, uh, with some other individuals. Um, but how can we form you know, some sort of movement uh, around free market medical care um, so that we can start to transition into this new model? Because I'm, I'm a big believer that this is the future of medicine. Yeah, well, me too. Um, and let's go ahead and de- define free market healthcare. Go ahead and define that, AJ. What's what's your definition of that? Yeah, my definition is you know there's minimal regulation from the government. You've got uh, people in the market that are able to compete based on price and quality. And once that happens, you're, you'll start to see that prices will get driven down. Quality is going to get driven up, and there's going to be a true competition. Um, so for that to happen, patients need choice. They can't have a restrictive you know, insurance network or, hey, here's where you can go get you know, X, Y, and Z done. Um, but in reality, they need to say, okay, here's your options. Here's who actually does this service. Here's what it's going to cost. Here's the quality. Um, and then you make the decision. So I, I think a lot of free market healthcare, in, in my opinion, is based around consumerism and, and transparency. For sure. Kind of like any other industry, right? Is that kind of what you're promoting? It's no different. And, you know, a lot of people try to make it more complex and it is complex. It's medicine. Um, There's a lot that can happen, you know, but, but for 80, 85, 90% of, of the care that's rendered, this could be done in a direct payment type of model. I agree with that statement. One of the most frustrating things that I see as a healthcare provider is that, um, Physicians and practitioners have been kind of um, squelched in their ability to access other professionals in the industry that might be better than the network that insurance is actually forcing someone to go into. And that that's wrong because if you know somebody offers a better service and a better outcome, that client should be given that choice. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's it's kind of a no-brainer, and you know when when the patient you know is actually able to select a physician that they like, you know their their quality is is probably going to be higher because they know what what they're going to get. And you know an example with one of my my family members, um, they needed to go see a cardiologist. They work for a different health system actually, um, and they're restricted to go see those cardiologists. Now, if they wanted to go see the cardiology group that I work with. It would have cost, you know, hundreds of dollars just for simple testing. So that's the problem, and and there's noticeably different quality uh, just in this example alone. Um, but it's a it's a really big issue that that we have to tackle. 
Well, when we talk about in-network providers, whether it be a hospital, whether it be a doctor, or whether it be a pharmacy, um, when the insurance company is picking for a consumer, a patient, um, who these best people are, there's no reason for the doctor to do a great job. I mean, in, in some ways, I mean, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not personalizing that doctors, you know, specifically do a bad job, but if they had to compete for each patient on a patient-to-patient level instead of an insurance network, they they would have to do a much better job at a better price, correct? Yeah, they would. I, you know, and I think generally speaking, most physicians are they're going to treat every patient the same. Um, but you know, when you start taking physicians out of that private practice model, you you de- you you regulate to the point where they can't have ownership in hospitals. You know, they don't know what things cost uh, for for most most things. Now, if you think about the surgery center uh, setting, that that's different. Um, but most of the time, yeah, you're right. They they don't have to compete on price. Well, I also think that um, they're not able to discern with their time as to which patient needs more service or more time. And we've kind of accepted the fact that, you know, well, that they're not going to listen to what I have to say or I can't give them the information or the tools that they need to have a good outcome. And I'll just throw an example out that I had today. I had a lady who's been working on her glucose and her her um, uh, lipid panels. And, you know, her, her doctor is in a network where they hardly have any time to communicate with one another. And it's unfortunate because she's an educated woman. She, she, she can understand the tools that if someone gives her that, you know, if I make these choices over this amount of time, my outcome is going to be different. And we, in the insurance model, in the model where people only have 10, 15 minutes if they're lucky and maybe just a few questions that they can ask their doctor, those outcomes are not going to be really good unless you have somebody that says, you know, I'm going to own ownership with my di- disease and I'm going to take control of it. But unfortunately, I feel like we've taken that off the table for our doctors and healthcare professionals um, because of the restriction of time with um, these regulatory agencies and also with insurance. Yeah, you know, that's interesting you bring that up. It's it's 100% true. And I actually call that hamster wheel medicine. And yeah. it's not meant to be derogatory to primary care physicians or, or nurse practitioners um, but I had that same experience actually at a different healthcare system here in Indianapolis five years ago. And that's when I started to learn about, you know, direct primary care. And sure enough, I have a direct primary care physician now. And, and it's, it caught, I, I used to say it costs about as much to fill up uh, your tank of gas, but now <laughs> yeah. it's a, now that's a half tank of gas. Right. Like, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I remember yeah. this specific example in this doctor's appointment, it had been six minutes and I'm not, I'm a young person. I didn't have these complex yeah. issues, but I have questions for my doctor. That's, right. it's all about the relationship and I, it's really important to me. And then, you know, he was walking out the door and I was still asking him questions and I'm not exaggerating. And, and one of the questions I asked him, I'm like, Hey, you should shut the door, man. This is private information. So, you know, you just see that kind of hamster wheel mentality and you've got doctors seeing, you know, way too many patients. So it it does hurt patient care and I'm sure it hurts satisfaction for physicians. Yeah, I was just going to say that, AJ, is that that doctor didn't like walking out the door in that kind of situation. He he, he wanted to do a better job, he or she, um, but he just, his hands are tied. I mean, because of the insurance 
um, situation and how they're reimbursed. Well, I even want to comment on the fact that I feel like we have too many um, in clinics and these big organizations, too many people with business backgrounds telling doctors how to practice medicine. And it's an art form. You have to listen and create a a communication and a relationship because that relationship really matters as to how you're able to uh, deliver care to that particular patient. And we are taking that out and away from them because we are saying, okay, well, we're going to, you know, put this dollar as a bottom line. And and I'm pretty sure that most physicians would agree with us and, and medical providers would agree that, you know, the bottom line is they went into medicine to help people and to take care of people, not give that MBA a big bonus at the end of the year. Yeah, it's, it's, it's spot on. Um, and sometimes, you know, I'm that MBA that, right. wow, people are, you know, mad at me. They're not mad at me though, because I'm not that guy. Right. Uh, and, and one thing, you know, I, and I'm especially sensitive to this because my wife is, is a physician. Um, she's a pediatric resident, um, way smarter than me, I, I might add. Um, and she lets me know that, you know, when we're talking about different things related to medicine, uh, that's not my job. And I will never tell physicians what to do or how to practice medicine. I'm here to try to break down doors uh, and make them wide open so that they can practice medicine like they want to and like they used to, you know, four decades ago. Yeah, and it really wasn't that long ago. I mean, Jan, I've been in healthcare now about 30 years probably. And, you know, 30 years ago, AJ, which doesn't seem that long ago to me, um, it was different. I mean, physicians controlled they controlled healthcare as well as they should. They're the most educated people in in the industry. They should control healthcare. Yeah, and you know, it's I don't like to give these these major huge systems any credit, but you know, Mayo Clinic, for instance, at least their board of directors has eighty five percent physician representation. That's how it should be. Yeah, that's good to know. I didn't I didn't realize that. That's the standard, you know. <laughs> so. Yeah. So you mentioned, and I, I know I follow your Twitter, but you also mentioned in this podcast about physician-owned hospitals. So you were talking about, tell us a little bit about physician-owned hospitals or lack thereof. Yeah, well, you know, there's, there's about 6,000 hospitals in, in this country. And, you know, about 200 of them have physician ownership in, in some capacity. Now, there's been, there's been that's, yeah, there's 3% of all hospitals have physician ownership. Um, this is a, this is a fault of the federal government, the centers for Medicare and Medicaid services and over-regulation that has occurred both in 2003. And then, you know, most commonly with the affordable care act in 2010. Now, why do we think it's a good idea to ban ownership in hospitals? Now, you know, you got a lot of people calling doctors greedy Um, You know, there's these supposed studies that CMS did that said, yeah, you know, they're referring to themselves too much, this and that. But the fact of the matter is, is that the outcomes are are drastic. They're different in terms of cost and quality. And I'll even go as far to say that the experience is tremendously better in a physician-owned facility. Um, And I've got unique insight into this because I work um, in a hospital, a specialty hospital that is owned by physicians. It does have physician ownership at the table. And this hospital is about as close as you could get to a surgery center 
uh, without being a surgery center and they're doing open heart surgery in it. So, you know, if you look at the, the difference in cost and quality across you know, the entire United States, this is the place to go. And it's no secret why. It's because the physicians have skin in the game. It's their business and they're going to protect it. It's not about money. It's about best quality care. Right. Yeah, because they know that's how they'll get repeat, you know, business or referrals. Um, you know, and physicians are in the business of healthcare. They're in the business of taking care of people. So why should we not think that they should be able, when they owned a facility, that they would give better quality care at a better price? I mean, seriously. I mean, it's it's, it's crazy thinking. I mean, you could argue that it was probably lobbying groups from big hospitals that probably started that rule because they didn't want competition. Yeah, I mean, it, it has to be them. I, I don't know who else is, is pushing for that because they're the ones that win in this. The lobbyists win, the health systems win, the insurance companies win, the pharmacy benefit managers win, the GPOs win. You know who doesn't? Is the patients. Right. And, Absolutely. And the, all the other clinical staff. They don't win. Well, to put it into a patient perspective, I throw my family under the boat a little bit, but many times what we see is that there is this um, check the box approach. Um, you must meet this criteria before we do this procedure, or we must meet this before we do that. And sometimes what that means is people go through unnecessary procedures before they get the procedure that they need. So let's, you know, let's give somebody, um, for example, let's try to do an ablation when they really needed to do a, maybe just a, um, a pacemaker or a pacemaker first and then an ablation. I mean, sometimes the physician with their practice and their knowledge and their skill know exactly what that client needs, but they have to go through all these little steps or all these little, you know, um, check the box in order to get paid, which is unnecessary. It means people are doing procedures that are not necessarily easy to go through. It's scary for them and their families. It's costing the taxpayer. It's, you know, I mean, I can keep going, but I'm sure you've seen that out there that we, we've created this like monster of, you know, the only way we can get to the end result of what the client needs is we have to go through that hamster wheel, like you said, to get there. And that's insane to me. That's a definition of insanity. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of uh, great physicians out there and systems that follow evidence-based medicine. They have, you know, very robust clinical algorithms that they follow that are appropriate. Again, they're the experts. Right. Uh, when you start bringing in insurance companies to play doctor without a medical license, to your point, that's where this unnecessary um, cost and, and services and time, which is of the essence in a lot of these cases, gets in the way. Uh, now, for instance, you need a prior authorization for a stress echo, but you don't need one for a stress or an echo. So, you know, there's there's a lot of things out there that are very nebulous and they don't really make sense from a from a clinical standpoint. And even sometimes from a business perspective, they don't make sense either. You know, you wonder why uh, they would require, uh, uh, you know, X procedure to get Y, um, but meanwhile, we can't get them in. So what's going to happen? They're going to get admitted to the hospital and it's going to cost more money. So that it's just, it's, a, it's perverse incentives all across the board. It sure is. So we talk about this and, and we complain, AJ. So tell us, what are some of the fixes? You know, I think if we just boil it down to, for, for simplicity's sake, um, 
direct primary care is, is a great foundation to build upon. If you stretch that out across different populations, and I, I personally think the Medicaid population is ripe um, to find these primary care physicians, pay them X per member per month, whatever that might be, um, to manage you know, these, these patients, people are going to be healthier overall. So I think that's a big facet of it. Direct specialty care, which is pretty new, um, starting to see people pop up all across the place now. People like Dr. Wallen, which I know you've interviewed him. Um, he's, he's a great person. Um, but these types of things where we pay directly, uh, and whether that's the employer paying directly or, or it's the, the patient paying directly, these are the types of arrangements that are going to move the needle. Um, paying cash for things is, is proven to be uh, a lot cheaper. But then again, you know, how do we get over this psychological barrier in this country that we need health insurance to get health care or to get, medi- you know, any type of service? It's not true. Um, and that's kind of been ingrained in, in the skulls of every American. And the Affordable Care Act kind of just exacerbated that. So I think if you start to think of, well, I need insurance because what if what happens if I'm in a, you know, I'm, I'm in the emergency room with a trauma or I get cancer? These are big issues that you have to consider, uh, but paying ten, fifteen thousand dollars a year before your insurance kicks in is is not the right. Uh, it's it's not sustainable, obviously, and it's it's only going to get worse unless people start to wake up and get out of that. So you know you've got different cost sharing uh, groups like uh, Crowd Health and Sidera, and I think more of those will pop up, and you'll start to see uh, kind of then your full health coverage plan gets gets kind of designed like that. Yeah, for sure. And I think one thing we need to remember, like um, Dr. Marion Moss says, is that coverage doesn't equal care. Yeah. So, you know, people are covered under all these insurances. Let's use Medicaid as an example. You use Medicaid, which Medicaid people pay zero co-pays. They have zero deductible. Um, the, in theory, they cost them nothing, at least indirectly. But I know um, direct primary care doctors they take care of a lot of Medicaid patients. These Medicaid patients will pay them $50, $70 a month because they have this Medicaid coverage, but they can't get in to see their doctor for six months. So they pay to see a doctor cash. That's kind of the system that we've got. Coverage does not equal care. Yeah, it's a it's 100% true. And, you know, a lot of the time on Twitter, I, I have to stop people. And even in real life, they start talking about healthcare. And I'm, I go, hold on, you're talking about health insurance. We're not talking about the delivery of care. You're talking about how to access that, which is proven to be uh, illogical. Um, so, Well, I also think too, we have this misconception that if we have insurance, it's going to save you from bankruptcy. And, and if you look at the statistics, that's not true at all. That most of the people that have filed bankruptcy because of a healthcare problem or, or a bill, it's people that have coverage and that coverage was poor or it didn't cover what needed to be done. And so when you look at the DPC model and, and the sharing ministries or the sharing groups that are out there, you know, you don't see that type of thing happening. So you know, we have this false hope that ins- that insurance is saving me from a hardship financially, which is isn't happening. Yeah, you know, the the most recent data I've seen is one in four Americans, so about 80, 80 million people, um, 
they have more than $10,000 worth of medical debt. Wow. Now, 59% of those are uninsured, but 56% of them are insured. Right, right, right. So <laughs> it's not acting as a, a tool to prevent, uh, you know, financial, you know, turmoil. In, in, it's, in fact, it's quite the opposite. Yeah, I mean that's just what we're saying is it you know obviously what we're doing is not is not the answer. So trying to um get more healthcare coverage um is not the answer because coverage doesn't equal care. So if our major goal um is to get people care, coverage is not the answer because that that's what we've been talking about for what 30 years plus maybe. I know since I was in pharmacy school we've talked about, you know, universal healthcare coverage. But let's talk about care. What about universal care? And I'm not saying that there should be universal care with, especially with the federal government or state governments involved, but it, it should be about care, not coverage. Yeah. And there, you know, there's a lot of proponents of a, a single payer or a universal system or a universal coverage. Um, I'm curious what they actually mean by that. You have to dig deep on that. Do you want the federal government to be in charge of everything it's it's extremely scary. If that happened, there'd be a black market for medicine in this country, no doubt. Um, different people would emerge, and they'd be, you know, people would be paying cash for things. A free market uh, would emerge from that. Um, you know, people love to chime in from from Canada and from other countries and say, "Well, you guys' healthcare sucks," and this and that. Well, you know, it's different. We have too many people in the middle that are extracting dollars from the equation. But once we get them out. Our care cannot be it's, it's unrivaled. Oh, for sure. And those same people in Canada that, compl- that that say things like that, those same people in Canada will come down to Surgery Center of Oklahoma to do a surgery because her uterus has been bleeding for nine months and she was, you know, needing transfusions um, weekly. Um, but Canada wouldn't take care of her, so she comes down here and she pays cash to, to the Surgery Center of Oklahoma to get her surgery done. So again, coverage doesn't equal care. Yeah, and shout out to Dr. Keith Smith. He's a he's a legend in, in this uh, this free market realm. He posted something the other day. I, I think it was the other day. That someone came from Canada. They would have had to wait six years for this surgery, and instead they're going to go to Oklahoma, pay cash, and you know it's they're done in a week. So six years, right? Right. And it sounds like a lie, but it's, 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 it's almost too, when we, this is what I love about free market medicine, because when you talk about it and you compare it to traditional, our traditional healthcare system, it, it beats it so bad. It's almost unbelievable. Wait a minute. The price is one tenth, one tenth the price. Yeah. And wait a minute, you can get me in 10 times faster. Yeah. And the quality's better. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, seriously. And here's the thing with the federal government issue. If we talk about universal care, and I talk about this in my book, the, the, the government, whether it be state or federal government, is already 75 plus percent in all of healthcare. So if we think that the system is bad and coverage doesn't equal care and people aren't getting good access, then why should we think if the government took more control, they'd get better care? I mean, there's just no way that that's going to happen. It would be worse care. So we have to get, we have to do a true, true free market. We have to get the federal government, the state governments out of it. And consumers need to be charged of their own health care. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, you know, when we finally reach a point where people can be consumers and they understand, okay, here's how many health care dollars I have to spend, whether it's out of an HSA or, you know, whatever it may be. 
that's where the surgery center of Oklahoma's of the world uh, will come to play and say, hey, I can offer you this colonoscopy for $2,000, whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, and Dr. Smith says this, uh, and, and someone that I you know, follow closely and am friends with, Dutch Rojas, mm-hmm. uh, brings this up all the time, is that people associate a higher price tag for a higher quality. Now, certainly that is relative uh, in many aspects of life. But for healthcare, it's not. So there's that, There's almost a reverse sticker shock where you're like, hold on, how can you offer this service with anesthesia, with everything that I need for you know, a fraction of the cost? This doesn't seem right. Well, the, the question is, how can they charge that much? So, <laughs> Yeah, that's really more the question, right? So I'm going to call that a reverse sticker shock. so aj as we wrap this podcast up um i just got to ask you so what what do you have a passion for well you know i love to help others i love to find the truth in things um i I really love fast cars um to be honest with you i I wish i was a race car driver but (laughs) i'm passionate about uh trying to create you know meaningful change and i will do whatever it takes uh to get there and you know even if my wife wasn't a physician, I would still be fighting very hard for this because, you know, if I have kids one day, I don't want them to, to grow up in this type of system. It's wrong uh, and it can be fixed. And I think you and others can see the writing on the wall that this is the direction to go. Well, you've definitely helped us realize our goal of educating and empowering consumers to take charge of their own health. That's why we do this. So, AJ, what's the best way to find you if somebody has questions? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. Um, it's at AJ Kavanaugh. Um, feel free to follow me, tweet me, tag me in interesting conversations. I'm happy to debate different types of things. Uh, but yeah, that's that's the best way to follow me. Well, and I got to tell you, I'm a I'm a car fan. I'm a car fan myself. So uh, maybe our next conversation. That's kind of what we should talk about. <laughs> hey, I'm 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 game for that. Yeah. So uh, thank you so much for being on, AJ. I really, really appreciate it. You've helped us realize our goal at Health Solutions of educating and empower consumers to take charge of our own health. And um, stay tuned because you will be getting a free copy of my book called Sickened, How the Government Ruined Healthcare and How to Fix It. And it talks about the fixes, you know, free market principles like we've been discussing. So check your email. My assistant will be emailing you a digital copy shortly. Uh, Yes, thank you, AJ, and thank you, listeners and viewers, for tuning in today. You've been listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you.